Good morning, everyone. My name is John Fairchild. I'm interim pastor at Grace these days. Great to sing and worship with you this morning. Just an announcement before we release the kids for their Grace Kids program. Uh, As you know, recently we uh, appointed two new elders, so our elder team is now uh, uh, Mark Brown, Einer Skolsig, and myself. We would like that team to grow with God's hand upon it, upon us. And so uh, we are uh, inviting uh, suggestions from the uh, congregation as to who you might think prayerfully uh, perhaps could make an elder to join the team. So we're looking for suggestions, male or female, uh, to our elder team, and we'll uh, have that uh, opportunity open to you for the next three weeks. Uh, up until uh, early in July. Uh, you'll get an email this morning, or tomorrow morning uh, just describing this a little bit with a link on which you can make suggestions for uh, future elders. Uh, so just wanted to announce that to you and invite your participation. Um, as you prayerfully think of who do you know and, 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 and connect with and uh, appreciate in the congregation who might fulfill the role of an elder. So thank you for your participation. We went through that same process about a year ago, and, uh, and uh, so we're going through it again at this point. Uh, now let's release the kids to Grace Kids, the way you can go, carefully, slowly, quietly, and meet up with your Grace Kids volunteer at the back door. The rest of us uh, will be turning to the good old book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. It's the third book in, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, if you have a Bible with you. If you don't, some of the pertinent verses will be displayed on the screen behind me as we go along this morning. Last Sunday, we talked about, uh, we began the subject of Jesus the Savior, and today will be part two on Jesus the Savior, next week Jesus the Lord, the week after that Jesus our treasure. Uh, So uh, some more on Jesus the Savior this morning. Um, As we have said, uh, Christians often like to say and are quite correct in saying, Jesus is my Savior or Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. And, uh, And so we're just digging a little deeper into what exactly do we mean when we say he is our Savior. And uh, we'll, we'll look into some of the Old Testament roots of the Savior concept this morning. Some of these things are a little bit complicated. I'll do my best to explain and teach, and you do your best to listen and keep your thinking caps on as we go along through this message this morning. But I think it's really important to understand the roots, what lies behind Christ on the cross. Really important. Christ on the cross was not an idea God had one morning when he woke up and said, as if God ever wakes up, and said, let's try something new. No, this is really old and really deep and very foundational, what we're talking about this morning. Father, thank you for opportunity to to, uh, just sit together and learn from your word and try to pull all the pieces together. And we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit to help us understand more deeply than ever before what it means when we say Christ is our Savior. How did that happen? What does it mean? Speak to us this morning, we pray. Amen. We talked about sin quite a bit last week because saviors have to save us from something. And in our case, in the gospel, in the 
in the Christian message. We are saved by Christ from our sins. And it's really important then to think about, well, how bad is our sin problem? And we dug into it a bit last week and discovered it's worse than we think. Uh, I quoted uh, Pastor Tim Keller, the late Pastor Tim Keller from New York City's Redeemer Presbyterian Church, who used to say we are more sinful than we realize and we are more loved by God than we realize. And we have to hold both of those truths together because they're both true. And, uh, and so we were talking about those things. <laughs> Sin is a virus that has infected the world. It is the worst pandemic that is not over. It's still going on. Sin destroys. Sin corrupts. Sin separates us from God. And sin is in all of our lives. And we all need a Savior. And that is the message of the gospel. And, uh, and so we'll continue to talk about that this morning. <clears throat> Let's think about the first sin for a moment. It's described in Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve, who were sinless, were in the garden, and, uh, and there was a tree with a fruit on it that they had been told, you can have all the fruits of all the other trees, just not that one. And, uh, and so they, they sinned, and they took that fruit uh, as an exercise of their own will in uh, <coughs> rebellion and in disobedience to God's clearly stated will. And they were led there by the serpent who deceived them. We have a cottage uh, that our family shares uh, on uh, Georgian Bay up at Tobermory, and it's a beautiful place. And uh, sometimes in the morning, not every morning, but some mornings, there is not a breeze in the air, and it's been a quiet night, and you go out on the little deck and you look out onto our bay called Dunks Bay, and the water is like glass, like there is not a ripple. And that was the state, our spiritual state, between us and God before sin came. But uh, sometimes people uh, <coughs> ruin that beautiful scene, in my opinion. And they, uh, maybe they have a dog and they throw a stick way out in the water and the dog goes charging out and there goes your peaceful, uh, smooth surface on the water. There's a disruption, a disturbance. That was the first sin. It was a disruption and a disturbance of the perfect. And, uh, and it's been getting more disrupted and more disturbed and more awful every day since that day as mankind has multiplied on the earth. There was a day when there was no sin and there will be a day when sin will be gone. But we are in the middle right now of a catastrophic, horrible mess of sin. Humankind needs a savior. When Adam and Eve sinned, they became suddenly shockingly aware of their guilt and even of their physical nakedness. nakedness. And um, God had some words with them, as we know. And as he was finished, it says he clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of an animal. That was the first sacrifice to cover sins. An animal had to die in order for their sin, their nakedness, to be covered. We're going to trace that covering process through the Bible this morning a little bit, and we'll end up at the cross of Christ, where the ultimate covering was made. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 16, uh, if you have it, or we'll see it behind us in a moment, uh, and, uh, and try to investigate a little more deeply what's, uh, what's going on here. 
So as I said, there was one simple sacrifice offered to cover Adam and Eve, and an animal had to die in order that they could be properly and effectively covered. But that one simple sacrifice grew into a, a really huge, complicated system of sacrifices. And we know it as the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And, uh, and uh, before, before long, a whole system was set in place by God and, and recognized by God as an agreement between man and God. Uh, but uh, there, there were, when you read Leviticus, you're... you're your eyes begin to roll and your head gets a little fuzzy as you're trying to keep track of all the different kinds of sacrifices. There are burnt offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, peace offerings, fellowship offerings, and all kinds of animals are dying. It's, it's a horrendous situation, all stemming from that one disturbance that spread into all of mankind. And so that's why sometimes we don't like to read some of these books in the Old Testament because they're graphic and horrible, and also be very complicated. But there is one culminating chapter, I believe, that uh, we should become more familiar with, and it's Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus describes all these sacrifices in detail, but there's a moment where there's something called the Day of Atonement, where one sacrifice is offered that really speaks for them all, and we'll read about it in Leviticus chapter 16. The Day of Atonement. Uh, the Jewish language calls it Yom Kippur. You've probably heard of Yom Kippur. Yom means day. Kippur means atonement or covering. The word atonement means to cover. And uh, our sins are covered under this agreement, this system that God has initiated between uh, humankind and himself. Let's read just a little bit. The whole, I thought, I should read the whole chapter. And I thought, ah, it's kind of long and complex. So I'm just going to read parts of it. And I'm going to start in verse uh, 14. It's describing the priest, the high priest, who's presiding over this ultimate sacrifice, which was offered once a year on the Day of Atonement. The, uh, the, 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 the Jewish religion still celebrates this day. It's called Yom Kippur, and it usually occurs around late, uh, late September or early October. They don't do a sacrifice, but they do recognize the, the significance of the day being a day of acknowledgement and repentance for the sins of the nation. So the high priest has gone through a ritual, which we won't read, where he is cleansed himself first, and now he's fit to offer a cleansing offering for the nation. Verse 14, he is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover... And he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover, seven being a number of perfection. Verse 15, he shall then slaughter the goat. Here's the first goat. For the sin offering for the people. And take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover, sometimes called the mercy seat, atonement cover, and in front of it, in this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, 
and the whole community of Israel. It spoke there of a goat. I warned uh, Andrew Gardner this morning, I know he has goats on his farm, and I said, I'm going to be talking about goats tomorrow. Watch out. <laughs> because there are actually two goats. This is the first goat, and the first goat suffers the fate of death. <clears throat> it is slaughtered, its blood is spilled, and the blood is taken inside the curtain, which represents a barrier between us and God, and inside the curtain is called the most holy place. In some translations, the holy of holies. And it is the pure, holy presence of God. And blood that was sacrificed for the sins is taken in and sprinkled on the cover of atonement or the mercy seat. It's as if God has, is saying, has there been sin? Yes, there has. Has it been atoned for? Yes, it has. Has a death occurred? Yes, it has. What is the proof of the death? The sprinkled blood, the lifeblood of the goat. <clears throat> the priest goes in and he performs that ritual once a year. There's a second goat. And we'll read about the second goat in verse 20. Because these two goats represent two fates or two outcomes of sin. And they bear that fate or that outcome for the people of the nation. Verse 20. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the live goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. In this translation, the NIV, it's called the live goat. In some translations, it's called the scapegoat, <coughs> where that phrase comes from, someone who carries the penalty, the, the guilt of what has happened. And so in this case, the, uh, the live goat or the scapegoat uh, isn't killed. But uh, uh, a man, a designated special person, uh, comes near and he lays his hands on the head of the live goat, in a sense, transferring the, the sins of the nation onto it. And then he leads the live goat out of the community, out into the wilderness, and shoes it away, and it, will be never seen, it never will be seen again. It is gone. It represents something as well. I'll get to what it represents in a moment. So you're the offerer of the sin. You have performed your offering, whether it was an individual offering, as was often the case, or this special day, the offering for the whole nation. But you're walking home, perhaps, with your husband or your wife, and you have a troubling thought. Two thoughts, actually. How could a mere goat possibly pay for my sins in any kind of effective way? I wonder if I'm really covered or not. I wish I could really know. It doesn't seem fair. The second question is, why do we have to keep doing this year after year after year? Does that mean it doesn't really work? Good questions, both. 
I'm going to take us now fast forward into the New Testament and the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. And uh, <clears throat> Danny, you can pull that slide up. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 <clears throat> says, the first four verses, the law, which is what's described back here in Leviticus, the old covenant or the law, is only a shadow of good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, remember those questions? It can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So why do it? Doesn't work. Just reminds us of sin. It's impossible for a goat to remove a human's sins. A goat doesn't even have a spirit or a soul. What's, what's going on here? And he says here in this passage that that system was a shadow, a shadow of a representing a reality. So if we had a spotlight over here shining towards the wall, and I was the, I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle, and if I stand like this, you will see my shadow on the wall. You know how you do rabbits and dogs and everything for kids? Well, well the shadow isn't the real thing. I'm the real thing but I'm casting my shadow on the wall because of the shining light. And what he's saying here is that the whole sacrificial system is the shadow. It's the shadow caused by some reality that we haven't seen yet, but it's casting the shadow. The whole New Testament gospel is the reality is Christ, our sacrifice. We'll, we'll, we'll work through this as, as we go. So what does take away our sins? The answer is the real sacrifice, the death of Jesus, the Son of God on the cross, the Savior. Let's make a few reflections on the passage we read in Leviticus chapter 16 about the Day of Atonement. It's just the shadow <clears throat> that we see on the Day of Atonement. <clears throat> First reflection. Those two goats that died... The one that didn't both die. The first one died and his blood was shed. The second one was banished from the community away forever, never to be seen again. This was a very public act. The people were all present and they all saw the death of the goat. They all saw the banishment of the scapegoat. And they were to see and be shocked and reminded and disturbed at the effect of sin as they viewed it. It wasn't done privately in a tent somewhere and then people were announced to. It has been done. They saw it done right in front of their eyes and it was meant to have an impact about the importance and the seriousness that sin and how it disrupts our relationship with God. Jesus was crucified very publicly, just like them, on a cross, and there was a sign put on the cross. This is Jesus, the Son of God, uh, the King of the Jews. And the sign was written in Hebrew, Greek, 
and what was the other one? Aramaic? Oh, Latin, sorry. Latin, Hebrew, and Greek. The three major languages of that time. It's kind of like at a crossroads, a very public place where Greeks, Romans, and Jews would pass by and they would all see it in their own language. Jesus was crucified and portrayed very publicly to the world. It wasn't as though Jesus slipped away to a private place one day and then came back all smiles about two or three days later and said, I have died for your sins. You should all be happy. Did he really? We wouldn't know, but we do know. He was crucified publicly for us, that we would see and be shocked and be disturbed and be horrified at the implications of sin in our world and in our lives. That's the first point. The second point is that the, we didn't read these verses, but uh, the priest had to be cleansed first. In the Leviticus 16 situation, the priest had to go through an elaborate ritual just to be cleansed and clean enough to offer a cleansing offering for the rest of the people. It's like a surgeon going into the, the theater of surgery who has to go through an elaborate cleansing, washing process, be all gowned up and everything to be clean enough to do what the surgeon does. And, uh, and so it was with the Old Testament high priest on that occasion. But here's something very different. Jesus is our high priest. And the book of Hebrews and other places make it explicitly clear he did not need to be cleansed. He was clean himself, sinless, absolutely. The book, uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 7 says that Jesus was holy, says our high priest was holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Our high priest is infinitely different than the human high priest that we read of in Leviticus 16. You know, when sins are, are paid for, you have a, the offerer and you have the priest, both brought together in the presence of the offering before God. And uh, it's, it's really an important combination. The priest brings us together and makes the offering. We come together and bring the sins, and Christ offer, er, God pronounces the forgiveness, seeing that something has died in the place of the sinner, and that is the offering. Third point, <clears throat> the first goat paid the penalty of sin as it bore the sins of the nation. It died and its blood was sprinkled before God. The second goat paid the penalty of forever separation. The first goat, death. The second goat, separation or banishment. And it paid the penalty of forever separation and banishment from the community in which it was loved and cared for. Jesus on the cross paid the death penalty, as the first goat did, for us, because the wages of sin is death. Sin causes death. That sin causes death is an is a, is a, is a unbreakable law in the whole universe of God. Just like if, you, uh, if, I, if I stand here on the edge of this platform and I take a step and I fall off and break my ankle, I can't say, that's not fair. 
I have to submit to a law of the universe that says, uh, of, of gravity, which, which pulls me down and, uh, and, and I can suffer injury. And as that is a law which I can't change, I just have to accept and work with it, so that sin causes death is an even greater law in the universe and sin causes death and separation from God. And so we have Jesus. He paid the death penalty for us on the cross, but he paid another penalty too, another aspect of sin's penalty. And that was he himself for a time was separated for the first time from his father in all of the infinite past. Never before had he suffered a separation from his father. It was like he was standing on a sunny day in the presence of his father and all of a sudden a horrible black cloud came over and he felt the chill of that breakage of fellowship between him and his father in all of human history. The most shocking, troubling, unnerving, unexpected, confusing, alarming, upsetting, heartbreaking, disturbing words that have ever been spoken on this planet were cried from the darkness of the cross, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? He felt it to the core of his soul as he bore our sins. That's what the scapegoat felt as it was banished from the presence of the community. How true it is when we think of all that Christ has gone through and done for us to save us, of his fierce courageousness, that nothing could stop him from dying for us. We sang it last week, the reckless love of God. He chases me down, fights till I'm found. There is no shadow you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb up, no wall you won't kick down, no lie you won't tear down, coming after me. And so it was. On the Day of Atonement, there was a priest and there was a sacrifice, point four. Both the priest in the Leviticus 16 situation and the sacrifice, the goats, were temporary and imperfect. But on the day of the cross, Jesus was both the priest and the sacrifice, and both were absolutely perfect and would endure forever. He was the priest offering the sacrifice. Oh, what sacrifice did he offer? Himself, his perfect life in our place on the cross. <clears throat> Point number five. In Leviticus 16.21, about the case of the live goat, the scapegoat that would be sent away, before he was sent away, it says the priest was to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head just through this act of the laying on of hands. And then he was to send the goat away. It was an act of visible connection. It was an act of transference. The priest represented the sinful people of Israel, and in reaching out and touching the live goat with both hands, he was transferring all the sins of the nation onto that poor goat, and in a sense, he was sending it to hell, away forever. They would never see it again. This act of laying on of hands of, on, the, on, on the sacrifice 
is spoken of many times in the book of Leviticus for the various different kinds of sacrifices. A few examples. It says the offerer, is to, Leviticus 1.4, is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. In chapter 3, if his offering is a goat, he is to present it before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it in front of the tent of meeting. A very personal act for chapter 4. When he is made aware of the sins he committed, he must bring as his offering for the sin that he committed a female goat without defect. He is to lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slaughter it at the place of the burnt offering. I know that's terrible and that's graphic. It's meant to be. There are more examples like this. Let me ask you a question. Have you laid your hands upon your offering? Have you laid your hands upon your Savior? You cannot become a Christian and be saved at a distance. You can't sit here and see him there and say, yeah, 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 he's my Savior. I was raised in a Christian family, so I'm a Christian. I go to a Christian church, sing Christian hymns, I'm a Christian. No, 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 no. You have to approach your Savior and in a very personal, intentional, and intimate way, metaphorically, lay your hands on him. And a transference occurs there. Your sins are on him. His righteousness comes to you. That's salvation. We do it by putting our faith in Christ. He says to us, give your sins to me. Give them to me. That's what I'm here for. Number six, the day of atonement sacrifices were to be, form, to be performed every year, year after year. But the sacrifice of our Savior was the end of all sacrifices. He was the real thing. We read earlier, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, our Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And in Scripture, sitting down always means it's done. Work's done. We're finished. That's why on the cross, as he was breathing his last breath, Jesus cried out, it is finished. The work of atonement was done. <clears throat> Back to our troubling question. What about all the animal sacrifices? How could they really atone for our sins? Were they actually useless? Was the whole Old Testament sacrificial system just an exercise in futility? Not at all. Let's talk about credit cards for a minute. <clears throat> I'm sure you all have one. A couple of weeks ago, I went out and bought a new suit. First time in 20 years, I'm ashamed to admit. <clears throat> I'm up to date again for a while. <clears throat> So I got all fitted out and Kathy approved, which was important. <clears throat> and uh, I take my suit in a bag up to the front counter and I plop it down and the salesperson says, how would you like to pay for that, sir? I could have put down cash or whatever, but I said, I'll use my MasterCard. And he said, fine. And he hands me the little machine and I just take my card and I just touch the machine and, 
And uh, he says, thank you very much. Here's your suit. Have a good day. And away I go home with my suit. I own it. It's mine. But have I paid for it? I'm going to go home and check my bank balance. So I go online and, and uh, my TD Easy Web account, and I look in there, and, and, uh, and, and the money hasn't come out. So I haven't paid for it. So how is this suit mine? It's kind of weird, isn't it? The reason that it's mine is because of an agreement, an agreement between the bank and the store and me. And that is, is that I can have the suit now, and an agreement has been reached that it will be paid for in 30 days. And so in 30 days, the bill comes, and the money does come out of my account, and it is paid for then. And in my simple-minded understanding, in the Old Testament, when the animals were sacrificed for sins, it was like putting it on your credit card. It wasn't really paid for. But there was an agreement between God and humankind that you were covered until the real payment would be made. The real payment was finally made at the cross when Christ paid it all for us. I just think that's incredible that he sums up everything with his death on the cross. There's an old hymn that says, Hallelujah, what a Savior. I'm going to close with two Christmas verses. Matthew 121, the angel is speaking to Joseph in a dream about Mary. And he says, she will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And in Luke 2.10, about nine months later, <clears throat> some angels appeared to some shepherds who were keeping watch over their flocks by night. And they were frightened when they saw the angels, and the angels said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. You know, there's going to be a great hymn sung in, in heaven. We can read about it in Revelation chapter 5. Everyone is gathered around and this hymn will be sung and it'll be the most magnificent moment you could ever imagine. And we're going to sing and we're going to, we'll, we'll remember the slain animal in Genesis 3 that covered their sins. We'll remember Leviticus. We'll remember Leviticus 16. We'll remember the cross and we'll sing, Worthy is he who was slain. Our Savior. Everything culminating in his death on the cross and his resurrection. Ah, his resurrection. Next week, Jesus the Lord. Lord, Help us to slow down and, and ponder deeply and worshipfully. One slain animal in the garden, hundreds of thousands of slain offerings throughout the old covenant era, and finally, one perfect and final sacrifice on the cross. Glory to you, Lord Jesus. You are worthy. Amen.